All right, you good? No, but let's go. All right. Welcome to the Post-Status Review with Jim Babka. I'm your co-host, Howard Salter, and I'm here with Jim, who is the president of Downsize DC and the co-creator of Zero Aggression Project with Perry Willis. How you doing, Jim? I'm excellent, Howard. How's that cough doing, buddy? <laughs> as long as I don't laugh too much, right? Uh, it's still there, and hopefully we'll we'll be fine. I expect it's going to be with me a couple more weeks. Probably. I wanted to take a few minutes uh, at the beginning of this podcast, though, and just say uh, hello to a couple of our listeners who have been engaging with us on our website, downsizedc.org. Uh, both Travis and, uh, and Bobby Hughes, we appreciate you guys uh, chiming in on the comments section of episode two, and uh, I hope you continue to listen and continue to interact with us. And that's really our goal is we don't want to just talk to you. We want to interact with you on social media, on our website, and ultimately uh, through your representative. Yes, we you know we take comments seriously. We've been reading every one of them, even if we can't respond to all of them, and and we have they've influenced what we've chosen to cover uh, in the show. Speaking of uh, subjects and topics on the show, uh, we wanted to talk some about the Fourth Amendment today. And and at the beginning of this, I want to read to you the the. Uh, the actual Fourth Amendment itself, it says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized." So let's discuss this Fourth Amendment because for most of this decade, Downsize DC has been doing important, even landmark work in this area. So let's start here. Starting in the late 1960s, the Supreme Court used a privacy rationale to interpret the Fourth Amendment, but it is failing us in the 21st century. Can you explain how and why, Jim? Yes, Howard. Uh the reasonable, the standard that they started employing around 1967 and 68 was a reasonable expectation of privacy. This replaced what was previously a property rights understanding, which we're going to talk about more here as we go. The reasonable expectation of privacy basically said that if you, um, the reasonable test really had to do with where the technology was at. Um, so your expectations would literally diminish as technology advanced. And that's the reason that this uh, rationale hasn't worked very well for us. It's been, it's been the case, for example, that the police can sit outside your home and they can use a device that can see how people are moving through the house, or they can uh, they can uh, monitor uh, the, the way inside the house, maybe using electronic tools, they can monitor uh, what's being said or done in a house, or what kind of activities are occurring there. And they can do all that from outside of the residence. And so it's a very, uh, it becomes a very subjective standard, and it constantly is under pressure to shrink because the technology just keeps, it makes walls, makes privacy itself increasingly irrelevant. And we've experienced this even with the phones that we're carrying around now. We're starting to find more and more that everything that we're doing, our movements, the things that we're looking at while we're using those phones, the things that we're saying, all of that can be, uh, is in this era of terrorism, allegedly, 
is being gathered without warrant. So the Fourth Amendment is was not doing for us what it had been doing previous to this rationale being installed. And this is, as I said, a fairly modern development. I'm sitting here talking to you, having just passed my 50th birthday, and it's basically my lifetime that this has been going on. So that's the subjective standard, but is there an objective standard? Yes, and that is property rights. So this, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the slogan that came out of the American Revolution, no taxation without representation. And maybe they think that's where the revolution ends. This was all over some taxes. But that wasn't the only thing that was going on. If you read the Declaration of Independence, there were a variety of civil liberties being endangered. And one of the early provocations in the 1760s had to do with this general warrants idea, the idea that there was some administrative power that the king's office or the king's men could use to just simply go and do whatever they wanted, search anything they wanted uh, of the colonists' possessions or belongings. The Fourth Amendment's history is really grounded in the events that occurred during the 1760s, previous to the Revolutionary War. And so when they say that the, the, that the, uh, the, your, pa- your person, your papers, your effects, when they speak of those things, they are speaking of properties. They are speaking of things that you own or possess. And we know that you own or possess them. So this is no longer a subjective standard. It is an objective standard. And we can tell when the boundary of those things has been crossed. That, too, is an objective standard as opposed to the reasonable expectation, which was constantly shrinking before. So now you're not basing this on somebody's expectation or what is or is not reasonable based on what some judge thinks at the moment. Instead, it's grounded very firmly in something that we can physically demarcate, which is the boundary of your property, the boundary of your person, the possession of your personal effects. So that's an objective standard. Your organization, Downsize DC, filed a brief arguing the restoration of property rights as the key interpretive method of the Fourth Amendment and won, correct? Yeah. So this, we actually turn the tide. So we start off talking about how privacy became the dominant rationale in the late 60s. Well, in, in, we joined with 14 other groups in the Jones decision during the 2012-2013 timeframe, and we won a landmark decision in U.S. v. Jones. The case of, uh, we joined 14 other groups in putting out this amicus brief, and uh, the, in the case of Jones, uh, they knew that he was probably involved in, um, in moving drugs. In fact, probably a fairly substantial amount of them. And so what they did in order to gather evidence is they attached a GPS device to his Jeep, and they did this as part of their investigative technique. They used no court war- valid court warrant. Uh, and they just monitored his movements for for weeks. Now, their argument was that he was in the open, right? He was in a public place, so he had no reasonable expectation of privacy because he was out in public. And uh, they argued that they... Uh, um, um, that they weren't invading his, they were just observing him. They weren't actually invading his property. But see, this ignores the fact that he owns the Jeep. And they weren't actually following him. They weren't observing him in public. What they were doing was they were using his property to track his movements. So they were tracking his person using his property. And so by making a property rights argument, we were able to say, sorry, you needed a warrant in order to conduct this activity. Um, we further argued, Howard, that they were also engaged in a fishing expedition to gather evidence. So if you read the, the, uh, the, uh, the Fourth Amendment closely, you, you see that it says that, that the warrant has to be based, A, on probable cause. So it's not, you know, at that point, you know that there's a piece of evidence or you deeply suspect there's a piece of evidence that you can get. You have reason to believe there's real evidence that you can collect in a case. And then 
with by oath, you have to describe what you're searching for. What is the thing that you're going to search and what is the thing that you intend to seize as evidence? So this test was not met at all in Jones's case. And we and he was able to successfully argue this to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and our brief, our brief alone came and made this argument. I had a funny story because I had the head of another large libertarian organization who had also written a brief for his group. And he laughed out loud. He's like, you guys, he goes, I got to give you credit for being bold. Nobody's going to read what you wrote, but at least you guys stay true to the, to the, to the gospel line. Well, you know what? Uh, we ended up getting listened to and it ended up changing. Uh, precedent was established and, and, and a new direction uh, was put into place starting with this Jones case. Okay, which which you mentioned fishing expeditions. Mm -hmm. Fishing expeditions are not part of the Fourth Amendment, correct? Yeah. So, again, you have to look for what the, the thing is that you, you have to specify what it is that you're going to seize. You can't just willy-nilly go out and look for evidence. You can't just simply start searching through somebody's stuff because maybe possibly somehow at some point they committed a crime. These these things have to be based on a probable cause and they have to specify evidence that is already there's probable cause to believe that evidence exists that they're going to go seek where we're where are we going to go seek for those things how are we going to do them what do we expect to come back with that stuff has to be spelled out in a warrant and if it's being done properly um then it will be spelled out with with uh fairly decent specificity but the idea that geez you know we think howard's a bad guy and we're just going to kind of start gathering some kind of evidence against him of some kind that's not how a warrant is supposed to work and in this case, there was no warrant. And winning the this this landmark decision, that's not the end of the battle, though. No. So another case follows a year later. Uh, this is important to note. Uh, we were not involved in this one, unfortunately. But if it, it takes Jones and applies it again. And that case was called the Jardines case. And in, Jar in Jardines case, the police led a drug-sniffing dog right to the front door of a house that was su suspected of being used to grow marijuana. And at that point, this, the, the court said, no, you can't do that either because you crossed a property line. You went onto the property. You went up to the front door to gather the evidence. So you did not, again, you needed a warrant in order to do this. You had reason to believe it was there. You probably could have assembled a warrant, but you didn't do, you didn't follow the, the procedure correctly. So you take a case like Jones, you take a case like Jardines, you take these two case, two cases, because Jardines said not only is Jones correct, but it went one step further and said privacy is still part of our rationale, but it's second. So you're going to start, number one, with property. From this point forward, you're going to use the Jones test first uh, in determining, this is for judges and justices, this is for defense attorneys to know, you're going to use this test first property basis. And then if there's still uh, privacy concerns that, uh, that, that adhere, the privacy standard applies too, but it's secondary. We're going to start with property, which is going to handle an overwhelming number of these cases. But if there's any remaining privacy issues, a reasonable expectation of privacy, you'll consider that as well. So that's number one and number two are spelled out in, in Jardines. But do defense attorneys know this? Do judges know this? Has the word got out? No. So now our goal is to we have a goal to build more precedent. So what specifically is Downsize DC trying to achieve here? 
So uh, what Downsize DC wants to do is get the word out, obviously, but we want to expand the understanding of what is property, right? We want to make sure that this case is applied everywhere that it can and should be applied. And, and, that, and that means for us eventually restoring something called the mere evidence rule. Now, mere evidence is a little bit of jargon. Uh, but we've kind of danced around it during this entire discussion already. The Fourth Amendment allowed only search and seizure of instrumentalities, fruits of the crime, and contraband. That's the mere evidence test. And let me go through that again. You can only search or seize, if you're in law enforcement, with your or warrant, something that was used in the crime. They called that an instrumentality. Something that you gained from the crime, or, or which they called fruits of the crime, or contraband. And, and otherwise... You just couldn't go on what we were calling fishing expeditions. You couldn't just gather any any evidence you wanted. So this is this is an important uh, point. If you say, for example, and law enforcement knows this very well, that we're going to search a particular address, and you put that address in the warrant, and you go to the house, and you it turns out it's a duplex, and you go into the wrong unit, and you find evidence there, that evidence wasn't covered by the warrant. Okay. So you can't just anywhere you go, gather up any evidence of any various crime that you want of any time. You can't go in, uh, and this was established back in the 60s, you can't go in and you were looking to investigate crime A, and you didn't really find what you wanted, but you found some piece of contraband in, in a dresser drawer at the house, uh, whether it was drugs or some kind of you know obscene material or whatever, and then turn around and prosecute uh, the individual for that separate crime. Your warrant spelled out that you were working on something specific. So you couldn't just simply go in and get mere evidence. So the, again, the mere evidence standard covered instrumentalities, fruits of the crime, and contraband. Now, obviously, I'm with Downsize DC. I'm a libertarian. I don't want contraband included in that list. So we kind of, our goal is the mere evidence rule being restored, absent contraband. I don't think that anything very really should be contraband. It's a longer discussion we could have for a different day. So I just want to be clear to anybody who is, you know, kind of pure libertarian and they're listening and they're saying, does Jim want uh, warrants for contraband? The answer is no. Uh, so instrumentalities and fruits of the crime are basically our goal. And that's how we want the Fourth Amendment. This was the property basis under which the Fourth Amendment was understood uh, for most of the 20th century until the 1960s. Right, which actually that, that brings us all the way up to the present. And in January, you asked DC Downsizers to join you in sponsoring a brief in the Ross Ulbricht Silk Road case. And we'll provide our listeners a link explaining your take on that case. But there were both Fourth and Sixth Amendment issues there. Now you're going to file another brief next month in a case called Ackerman. What happened in this case and what will you argue? So in Ackerman's case, he sent an email that had contraband in it, and it was offensive contraband. And uh, there were attachments to a file, and this went through AOL. AOL uh, found that one of these, one of the four attachments uh, was, uh, they have a way of scanning for a particular hash code, and they were able to determine that this was very likely a piece of contraband. This was something that was should not uh, be circulating around. So they turned this over uh, to an uh, organization. Uh, that elect, pretends to be a private nonprofit organization, the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. However, this organization was founded largely by an act of Congress and has continued to be funded by Congress since then. And AOL was not really given a choice. Once they knew of the existence of this contraband, they basically were compelled to turn it over. And when it arrived at the NCMEC, they opened the email. 
Now, we are arguing that, again, a warrant is needed in this situation. The government is hiding behind the fact that the government didn't open it. A nonprofit organization opened it, and they turned it then over <clears throat> to the government for prosecution. We're saying, no, nope, you can't break the procedure. You have to have a warrant specifying what you think is in that document. Uh, Howard, I don't think this warrant would have been difficult to obtain. I don't know why they're playing games with the Fourth Amendment. They probably could have gotten it. Hash codes are pretty reliable. People who are familiar with internet cryptography have told me it's a very reliable way to know that something offensive has passed through an email filter. And AOL's terms of service could have covered, said, listen, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> we are not going to allow you to move this material through our systems. Um, it's a violation. We're going to do it. We're going to shut your account down. The account that he had was an account for him and his wife. And uh, she uh, stated some objection because she got kind of shut down and her system got searched as well. In fact, they after it got turned over to the government, they opened up all kinds of files. But the problem here is that the warrant citing what they were looking for, what they thought they were going to be able to seize, was never issued until after all of the evidence was already evident, available, and in front of everybody. It had already been searched. It had already been opened. So there's a, this is not, we believe this is not a new uh, realm. Email may be a fairly modern technology, but there's really some ancient things we could apply to it. Uh, we have, for example, have the ability to send a letter from one person to the other. And it has never been our, it's never been the case that the person who's carrying a package from, from, from you, Howard, in Florida, up to address to me, Jim, here in Ohio, that that person now owns the package. They don't own the package. They don't have the right to go in the package. The only person that can go in the package is the person to whom it's addressed. So it moves from one owner to another owner, and in between, someone takes possession of it and moves it. And the same thing is true of email. You can't simply go into somebody's email and open the email and start reviewing the contents of it. Uh, the same principle applies. Actually, the, this concept or this field is called bailment. And we want the, the bailment honored and respected and an amendment, uh, sorry, a warrant issued. And so if they cannot issue a warrant, they shouldn't be searching the contents of it. They can't hide behind uh, some technicality or loophole that they've created. This is, again, a violation of property rights. And in this case... Property rights have not been really applied. What's really, really, really interesting to me, uh, anecdotally about this case, is that when this went up to the federal appeals court, there was a judge there who said, Jones should be the rule. And they sent it back down to the lower court and said, use Jones to look at this. Make sure there's Jones in your analysis. Now, the lower court didn't do that and has sent it back up to that appeals court once again. And that's where we're going to file our brief. This will be our second brief in this case. That judge won't be present, Howard. His name was Gorsuch. He went on to become Justice Gorsuch on the U.S. Supreme Court. So we he's not going to be there. We want to make sure the argument is made once again that Jones needs to be applied here at the appeals court, and we are looking to file a brief. If you want to review what we've just covered here, we're providing a link to our planned Ackerman amicus brief on the show page or in the show notes. So if you're on soundcloud.com, just scroll down. It'll be in the notes there. Or if you're on our post on downsizedc.org, you can scroll down. It'll be in the, sh in the show notes. If you're listening to us through a subscribe service, then make sure you go to downsizedc.org and look for the post regarding episode three of the post status review. Jim, as we record this, there are some significant changes happening in the Trump administration. 
specifically in the foreign policy arena. Changes at state and CIA, and again, as we record this, John Bolton is rumored to be a candidate for the National Security Advisor. Yes, so I, I believe we have some clips. Can we let's uh, let's do start with clip A here. So you've you've called for regime change in Iraq, Libya, Iran, and Syria. In the first two countries, we've had regime change, and obviously, it's been I'd say a disaster. I think no, we agree. no, I, I don't agree with that. And, and let me let me you don't think it's been a disaster. No, because to argue that you have to argue. Let's just take Iraq to begin with. You have to argue that everything that followed from the fall of Saddam Hussein followed inevitably, solely, and unalterably from the decision to overthrow him. And that's simply not I, I would never argue that. Well, guess what? I would. Um, I, and, and by the way, I don't think you have to argue that. I think that's a, it's a fallacy that he's throwing forward. There's probably two or three fallacies twisted in it. And Mr. Bolton is being interviewed on Fox uh, television by Tucker Carlson in this segment, who did a great job. Uh, but... You, do, you could, Howard, make a very different argument, and we did. So in, in the lead-up to the war with Iraq, we built a website called Truth About War, truthaboutwar.org. It's frozen in time from 2003. People can go and look at it. And one of the things that we predicted was going to happen as a result or outcome of this invasion unalterably was going to happen. We made a prediction it was going to happen. We made lots of predictions. We made lots of claims. We've turned out to be right about all of them, including that there were no weapons of mass destruction. There, the, the, the cloud, the, the nuclear cloud that we were expecting to see that the president said in Cincinnati, Ohio, would be over an American city if we didn't act. We were able to demonstrate those nu- that nuclear weapons program really didn't exist. The evidence was abundant, but the media in the lead up to war was not reporting it. We were being lied to. And as we told the truth about war, we also made the following prediction, that the country was going to partition. It was obvious that this was going to happen. Let me tell you how obvious. There, are base, there were basically, basically three large or significant groups on the ground in Iraq. The smallest group was the Kurds. The second smallest group were the Sunni Muslims, and the largest group were the Shia Muslims. Now, the significance of this of the Shia portion will become clear in just a moment, but the Shia were, were well over. In fact, they were close to two-thirds of the country, and Saddam Hussein was a Sunni running the country with a very, very strong hand as a Sunni. He was holding that country together with an iron fist. Now, no credit to him, not a good guy, obviously a bad guy, a totalitarian. But the point is the country was going to break up. This is not this is this was obvious to lots of analysts at the time that were not being heard. And to this day, Bolton is relying on the fact that most people don't go and become experts on foreign policy or on the Middle East and don't know that this was the composition of Iraq. But it was obvious. And so I will challenge back that it was unalteringly the ca- going to be the case that the country was going to partition. In other words, that this was going to go badly. Let's uh, let's let's move on and, and hear what else Mr. Bolton had to say. You just said that Iran is the single greatest threat to us and to that region. I think you'll concede that Saddam was the greatest counterbalance to Iran and they were empowered by his by his fall. So I think it's fair to say if you think Iran is the real threat that way, you know, it's kind of hard to defend that decision, right? No, because I think your analysis is simple-minded, frankly. Okay. The Iranian threat, which stems from the revolution of 1979, uh, was underway quite apart from what Saddam Hussein was doing. The Iranians have been trying to get nuclear weapons for 25 years. 
Yeah, so essentially, Mr. Bolton is disagreeing with Ronald Reagan. He's disagreeing with the people who worked, the Republicans who led the, the country in the 1980s, because they saw Saddam Hussein as a counterbalance. He's disagreeing with George H.W. Bush, who also initially saw the uh, Iraqis as counterbalance to Iran. There was a war between these two that went on. Uh, started uh, went on through basically much of the 1980s, and in fact, even culminated in a, uh, a set of war crimes that were occurred involving the use of chemical weapons that uh, the United States helped, uh, our, elements of our government helped provide the targeting that would be used. And this was kept a secret. In fact, this has been lied about repeatedly. Uh, experts who have now gone and looked at this over the last five to seven years have begun to re- have, have and in repeace all of, the, of what had happened at this crime scene, have come to realize that Iraq used American targeting uh, intelligence uh, specifically and used chemical weapons that we were allowing them to have to, to create an atrocity. And when this war crime was committed, this violation of the Geneva Convention occurred, our government went went to great lengths to help cover it up in the years that followed uh, and make sure that, that, it, that uh, Iran couldn't get a hearing in the various courts, the world courts and so forth, where this would have been uh, adjudicated in some way and people could have seen the evidence. They tried to make sure that it wasn't the case. But the point that I want to make here is that Saddam, through all of this, throughout the 1980s, believes that the United States is an ally. And this belief that the United States was an ally culminated with him telling Ambassador April Glaspie that they intended to invade Kuwait, that they believed that they had a legitimate claim. She sent their claim up the channel. Secretary of State Baker said, uh, it's not our problem. It's not our issue. We don't care what you do. So Saddam believes himself to basically be a client of the United States. He's done our bidding against Iran at tremendous cost to himself. He's done it. And now he wants to go invade Kuwait and he gets a green light. And we know what happens next. We know that he did, and we know that the United States turned on him, put a whole world coalition together, and went in and attacked him. We didn't dethrone him then. With that, you know, two presidencies later, um, before we did that. But this story is not being told correctly. To say that, to pretend. I, I, I mean, this guy isn't qualified. Bolton isn't qualified to be in the position he's in if he can't acknowledge this basic history, which is all right in front of us. The entire 1980s Reagan era, Saddam Hussein was the counterbalance to Iran. I want to make one more point about what he said. He gave a factual error in there, and this is very, very, very important. He said that the Iran situation started in 1979. That is not true. And this is a case where Iranians know their history on this question far better than Americans know their history on this question, because they know that uh, that Mossadegh, their prime minister, was uh, deposed by an act of the uh, Eisenhower administration through the CIA. The leader of the, of the mission on the ground was a guy named Kermit Roosevelt, a descendant of Theodore Roosevelt. And, and one of the agents that was on the ground was a guy named Schwarzkopf, the father of the general who would later become the hero in the Gulf War. And they deposed, they worked from that same American embassy where Americans were taken hostage. They worked from that same embassy to operate that coup. And 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 Iranians knew it. They knew their history really well. They didn't take that that uh, embassy out of the blue. When they deposed the Shah, who was the American-backed regime, a brutal regime, and they replaced it with the Ayatollah Khomeini, 
they knew to go to that embassy to hold those hostages because it was part of a bad history where their democratic government had been deposed via coup. So to pretend that, oh, this all just started in 1979. No, this actually started in 1953. And so even that part of, of Bolton's analysis is inaccurate. And he just, you know, we don't even have time to go through all the things he gets wrong and whoppers he tells in this thing. But let's go back and listen to Tucker and Carlson and him talk about one aspect of this Iranian threat. Saddam Hussein's made Iran stronger? I think it made uh, it, the, the fall of Saddam, no, did not make Iran stronger. What made Iran stronger ultimately was the withdrawal of American forces uh, in 2011. So if you, I mean, I, I'm not saying you're the only person who thinks that. You're the only person I have met who thinks that. <laughs> That is an excellent burn. Uh, but, you know, the, the, uh, this, again, he, we talked about the fact that there were Shia and Sunni in the country, that Saddam was in the smaller Sunni camp, and the much larger Shia camp was basically out of power. There was no way that this was not going to turn bad. And it, and really, it's very hard to believe that he's, that anyone, including him, could be surprised as to how it turned out. Because across the line in Iran, the leaders, the Ayatollah and his party, they're Shia, Muslim. So there was going, if, if the Shia rose up in, uh, in Iraq, they were going to have alliances. They were going to have relationships. They had been the suppressed uh, class. They were going to have relationships with their neighbors next door. That relationship was going to happen. And to pretend that that wasn't going to happen and that there were going to be Sunnis who are now deposed from power, who were going to take this well, that they weren't going to start engaging in acts of terror, that they weren't going to start putting up roadside bombs and, and, and injuring American troops. Oh, my gosh. How could you miss this? How could you not realize this was going to come? No, this is it's a false narrative. Uh, you can debate after the crime happened, whether or not the American presence uh, was, was important. But the crime itself should have never happened. And it's really, really, really important because of what Bolton is about to say in this final clip we're going to cover right now. What would you say if you could sum up the one lesson from what has happened in Iraq? What would it be? Well, I think the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, that military action, was a resounding success. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it achieved its mission, yes, but what did it set the stage unalterably for what was going to happen after it? You know, he goes on to cast shade on Obama, and of course, he says that the whole problem, the whole failure of the everything here was that we withdrew U.S. troops, that we stopped playing world policemen. And it gets funny because even at the end where these two, where, where Tucker Carlson and John Bolton start exchanging some funny insults and barbs with each other, uh, that's great. It's good entertaining television, but it, it, it misses the fact that this man is part of the world policeman crowd. He is a neoconservative, and he has not met a, an invasion. He has not met uh, a regime change, more importantly, a regime change that he doesn't like. He, li he loves and still thinks it was the right thing to do, to, to, to go into Iraq, who was a country that was not threatening us in any way, and to use our troops under, the pre under, under false pretenses, under lies, to depose their leader. He believes the same thing was fine in Libya. And Libya has turned into a disaster. It's a hellhole. It's of epic proportions right now. All kinds of bad things are happening in Libya that you're not hearing about right now. They're not central to the news. But, but that failed. And he advocated the same thing for Syria. He's been a huge advocate for regime change in Syria. And he believes in regime change in Iran. 
This is a guy who basically has not met a regime change, a war he doesn't like. He is a warmonger. He is a world policeman. Now, it's not unusual for you to be asked about personalities and in interviews. Uh, and Downsize DC speaks out against policies, but not too often against appointments. Uh, you have an action item on this appointment, don't you? Yes, we are telling, it's called Tell President Trump to Reject uh, John Bolton. It's one of our flash campaigns, one of our time-sensitive campaigns. Uh, this rumor is floating around that he is being considered for National Security Advisor, and we are opposing it at Downsize DC. If people go to DC.org and they click on the menu and they see flash campaigns, they will find a campaign there for Tell President Trump to Reject John Bolton, and we encourage them to send a letter uh, th- we've made this very, very simple, Howard. You put in your contact information. The system tells you who your representative and two senators are and simultaneously delivers the letter. You can use the one that we've put there. We've made that it, it that easy for you. Or you can edit it and mend it uh, to say words that more are more specifically communicate for you. But either way, we need to send letters letting senators know that they should reject John Bolton if he's put up. But more importantly, this action item is about telling the president, please, please, please do not appoint John Bolton. Reject John Bolton. He's not consistent with your policy. Howard, when the president was running, he kind of he, he said repeatedly that Iraq was a mistake. He said that we need to do less intervention and play less world policemen. So help President Trump do the right thing. Don't give a guy like Bolton, who's never seen a regime change, no matter what history's told us about the previous ones, never seen a regime change he doesn't like. Do not put a guy like this in, in, in any kind of powerful office. I want to revisit what you were saying when you referenced John Bolton just at the end of that interview. You used the phrase world policeman. Guys like John Bolton or even John McCain like to call you and other libertarians isolationist, but that's not accurate. Libertarians believe in free trade. Libertarians believe in diplomacy. And libertarians even believe in interventions, right? Yeah, that's the part that surprises people because there's a lot of libertarians that go around calling themselves non-interventionists. Uh, I think that's the wrong way to look at this, and it's not a phrase I prefer to use for myself. Uh, and we've actively encouraged people to to to, to change their thinking about this. Um, I believe John McCain, who is kind of a symbolic leader in the Senate, uh, he's worked with Lindsey Graham over the years. He's worked with a couple other senators. Uh, t- to lead this kind of regime change faction, the John Bolton mentality of getting involved in every little skirmish on the planet and picking a side and beginning to impose military force in those places. John McCain is an isolationist. Now, here is how I would, and libertarians aren't, here's how I would illustrate it. Howard, if you and I have a conflict and I come to you and I talk to you, that's called diplomacy, right? I come and say, Howard, we've got a problem, and we begin to have a conversation to work out that problem. Well, the John Boltons and the John McCains of the world, they don't do that. They believe you send a military first. You even threaten to send the military before you have a conversation. They lay predicates that have to be met before a conversation is allowed to occur. They are anti-relationship. They don't want to have contact, and so they are isolationist by their very nature. They believe that it's acceptable to throw a punch. So to go back to your to the example of you and I, instead of me having a conversation with you about our, our differences, I say, no, I refuse to have a conversation. And by the way, Howard, if I see you on the street, I'm going to take a bat and whack you upside the head. Okay. Well, that's not going to uh, lead to a, to a uh, solution. Now I say, if you, you know, you have to do certain things, maybe you have to come by and kiss my shoes. And if you kiss my shoes, then maybe I will agree to not hit you with a bat. 
Well, that's a, that is not a diplomatic approach. That is not a relationship-oriented approach. That's not seeking to solve a problem. That's threatening. It's bullying. It's intimidating. It's isolationism. It is hiding behind violence, which is what the only thing that the state can actually do uh, is hide behind violence. They use violence to solve problems. That's how they do it domestically. That's what laws mean. And that's what John McCain's foreign policy is. We are suggesting as libertarians that we believe in free trade. That's a form of relationship. When goods cross borders, armies don't. It's bad business to shoot your customers. We believe in diplomacy. That is, we want relationship and dialogue to solve problems, not bullying, intimidation, and threats. But here's the surprising part, Howard. We even believe in interventions. We believe it's okay, it's permissible for an individual to go and act. Uh, we believe it's okay for groups to organize and go and act wherever they believe it needs to be. If they see a humanitarian crisis and military military uh, force is needed to deliver humanitarian aid or to stop violence that's being done against people in a genocide, we're not going to argue against that, but we don't believe the state is the right institution to do it. There's a couple reasons for this. First of all, it may be that you don't agree. So it's not right for me to take the state and take your tax dollars and compel you to pay for something you don't agree with or support. That's just wrong. So that's problem number one. But number two, the state is almost always heavy-handed and does things wrong. And it's incredible that even when they appear to be doing what would on the surface be the right thing, it ends up having terrible bad side effects, consequences. It, and, and those consequences frequently make us less safe. The CIA, people in the intelligence community, are inform well-informed enough to know what the word blowback is because they originated it. And so sometimes what happens is these interventions that are supposed to represent or protect American interests actually blow back. They have the effect of making us less safe. They may come in the forms of terrorism. They may come in forms of, of trade and economies that are damaged, uh, harm to our own economy, by the way, because we've lost a customer base and we've lost a base of relationship. There is always a better way. There's almost always a better way to do things. But if military force is what's needed, then individuals who want to volunteer, individuals who want to fund that volunteer effort can do it. George Orwell famously chose a side in the Spanish Civil War. His government didn't. He didn't go in with, uh, as, as an agent of his government. He went in voluntarily on his own. So we're not opposed to stopping a genocide, for example. We're just opposed to the government doing it because so frequently the way they do this is wrong. So... We've written about this. Uh, we have a mental lever. Uh, it's in our lexicon section. It, uh, it, it covers why the word non-intervention is non-interventionism is not sufficient for libertarians uh, uh, to use. Uh, then the question we answer in that lexicon section is, does the common definition of isolationism make sense? So we will, I, I believe I would provide a link for people to come and find that mental lever in the show notes. And we encourage them to go read that lever. And if they like what they're reading and they agree with how we're presenting ourselves, we encourage them to uh, sign up for the zero aggression project uh, that's zeroaggressionproject.org where they will find this mental lever zeroaggressionproject.org but i would also point them to a uh, column i wrote in october of 2017 that is available on our blog we will also provide the links in the show notes and it's why non-interventionism is not sufficient and here we get into uh, this idea that libertarians can actually be eager even for regime change Amazingly, we could even want a regime to be toppled and believe that some plan should be implemented to do it. 
Again, we just believe the state is the wrong vehicle to choose to do that. We'll include that a link to why inter, non-interventionism is not sufficient to describe our libertarian view. Uh, that link will be in the show notes as well, Howard. And I encourage people to think hard about how we're presenting ourselves because we do have, we're not the isolationists that John Bolton or John McCain would portray us to be. They are the isolationists. Yes. And as uh, Jim mentioned a few times there, and I mentioned earlier, there's uh, plenty of opportunity for you to scroll down the show notes and look for more information regarding this whole discussion, not just these individual items. If you are listening to us on iTunes, where you're receiving the updated subscription, but not necessarily seeing the full show notes, go to downsizedc.org and look for the post about episode three, and you'll find the show notes and all the links that you need there. So that wraps it up for episode three of the post status review. Okay. Thanks for listening today. And uh, we hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week.